Welcome to The Art Career, a space breaking barriers by letting you sit in on candid, straightforward conversations with leading art professionals in visual arts, writing, music, theater, and film. I'm your host, Emily McElreath, and I invite you to join me for inspirational conversations with icons of our generation. We dive deep into topics like self-development, career trajectories, mental health, social justice, and the artists that have changed our lives. With each episode, our mission is to empower you, expanding your journey through the arts. Join us for new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The Art Career is thrilled to announce its partnership with Glimpse. Glimpse Guides are a collection of luxury guidebooks with an outstanding social mission we are proud to support. Featuring the best of hotels, restaurants, activities, and itineraries, For each featured city, Glimpse Guides also include recommendations and travel tips by a curated selection of tastemakers. The most exciting part of Glimpse Guides is 100% of their profits go to Give a Glimpse, which provides funding for educational travel scholarships for underserved students. What is better than that? Glimpse believe that travel is the most important form of education, and it is their mission to send as many deserving students abroad as possible. Glimpse also offers luxury trip design services with VIP perks like early check-in, room upgrades, restaurant and spa credits, welcome gifts, and more. Glimpse has quickly become our one and only travel planner. Go check them out at glimpseguides.com. And tell founder Jordan Rhodes that the Art Career Podcast sent you. Ellie Hayworth is the founder of Hayworth, a strategic consultancy committed to promoting intrepid ideas at the intersection of art and design. The company was founded in the art of storytelling, specializing foremost in communications, marketing, and public relations savvy. Through her company, Ellie has distinguished herself as an extended communications director, a storyteller, a curator, a project manager, and a public liaison. Hayworth has developed, managed, and executed on public relations and marketing strategies for diverse clients across the arts and culture sector, including the Volta Art Fair, the Affordable Art Fair, Powerhouse Arts, and artist Susie Kalman's Dominic, among many others. As an art collector, Ellie contributes a profound passion for the evolving mechanics of the art and design market and for the connoisseurship that sustains it. Ellie received a Bachelor of Arts with a double major in Communications, Studies, and Art History at Vanderbilt and proceeded to earn a Master of Arts in Art Business from Sotheby's Institute of Arts in New York City. Born and raised in Miami, Florida, Ellie is fluent in Spanish and thus demonstrates a passion for international contemporary culture influenced largely by her own Cuban-American heritage. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Emily. It's great to be here today. Thank you for having me. Oh, gosh. We're so excited to have you here. I would like to start just by talking a little bit about our relationship. Ellie, how long have we known each other now? It's been quite some time. I think we met in 2015, which in many ways is the uh, the before times as we know it. So I think, you know, we've been through quite a bit. Em. Yeah, we really have. Ellie has been a amazing advocate for my advisory and for now this podcast. Ellie and I really, I would say, Ellie, we mentor each other. We spent the last few years, you know, trying to get on at least a monthly phone call and kind of spit different ideas off of each other. And 
raise each other up as women entrepreneurs. Um, I did meet you when you were working for Third Eye at the Brandt Foundation. And now, years later, you and I both have our own companies. We've been in business. Hayworth has been in business for how long now? We started in 2018. And how's it going, Ellie? It is going quite well. I think the kind of the natural progression of being an entrepreneur often means that some days you wake up and you feel exceptionally proud and like you've you've really made it. And then other days you realize that the hustle is just starting and you probably pivot more times in a day than you'd like to say you've had to pivot in a career. But it's been really a very, very rewarding experience. And I think the people I get to work with are probably at the heart of that. Pivoting is such a good word to use as an entrepreneur because you really have to be open to constant change and pivoting in order to make something work. And on that note, you know, I explained in your bio what it is you do. And as I do, you wear many hats, right? So we really can't talk about just one of those hats. However, from my experience with you and the help that you've given me, I really want to not so much, you know, we can talk about PR and that's the umbrella term, but this concept of self-promotion, right? This podcast is going to help so many younger art professionals, so many young creative professionals, right? We're working with the fine art community, the writing community, the fashion community. And you, as an entrepreneur, I think really can highlight the goals and struggles of self-promotion, the ways professionals can promote themselves organically. And I just wonder for our listeners, what advice can you give? You don't have a huge budget, right? As I don't. So I'm asking for myself and for all of us out there who are super scrappy and trying to do the best we can as you and I are with the resources we have. Can we dive into that a little bit? Yeah. And I think, um, Em, you you cited that kind of public relations is probably not the all-encompassing term to cover what Hayworth does. And I think maybe this is a nice kind of place to start because, you know, my pedigree is very much traditionally in the public relations sector. I worked at very prestigious and very successful agencies that are really, they specialize in PR with a capital P and a capital R. When I started Hayworth, that was very much my pedigree, but I had this kind of deep curiosity to help really kind of upstart arts companies that weren't falling within the kind of traditional trajectory of the art world. These weren't seasoned gallerists or seasoned artists who had a deep collectorship. These were companies that really were emerging in their own right. And, you know, back in 2018, I certainly had a lot of experience under my belt, but I was I was quite still quite young in my career. And I just had this kind of deep desire to help people grow their brand, whatever it may be. And I know that, you know, the art world can be very averse to the idea of the word brand. It comes across as too commercial, but I think we can probably put a pin in that, but everything is a brand. Even the aversion to being branded is a brand. So I agree. I, think, you I know, couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, it's a stance, it's a voice, it's a, it's an identity that you embody. And I really, I helped a lot of these early upstart companies and artists hone their brand. So I think from the perspective of how to be a strong self-promoter, you really need to kind of have a self-reflection moment. You need to sit down and really analyze what is it that either my gallery stands for, what is the program that I want to promote, or if you're an artist, which I've actually worked with a number of independent artists and designers directly, it's really kind of sitting down and running a self-audit. What kind of work do I create? What's the kind of messaging that I want to put out there? And a lot of the times now that, you know, flash forward almost five years, we have really like a toolkit that I impart on all my clients. I consider it kind of a communications best practices toolkit. 
But I think that once you've kind of lived and breathed your elevator pitch, your principles, your ethos, that elevator pitch should be the core of how you approach the world. So I think, you know, once you've been very authentic in getting down to what you stand for and what your vision in this world is, what success looks like to you, just keep repeating it. It's aspirational, but it's also a practice. And so that's really where I start. We run a kind of an audit on, you know, who these companies or these artists are and who they want to be, what they define success as. And then we hit that home time and time again, no matter what the initiative is that I'm helping them work on or bring to fruition, what the exhibition or art fair might be. We start with that elevator pitch. I love that. And I think that's a really important thing that sometimes even we can forget, right? To start with this ethos, with this mission statement, it seems obvious, but to really be able to start at the rootedness of who you are and what you want, what your goals are. I, with my company, always say to myself, as cheesy as this sounds, where do you want to be in five years, right? Mm -hmm. And what are you going to implement to be able to make that happen. So you mentioned a toolkit that you share with your clients. Does that have everything to do with social media to, you know, how they're going to approach their branding? Like, what do you mean when you say toolkit? You know, maybe it's easier for me to bring this down from the abstract and talk specifically about an example. But essentially, I work with a wide array of different clients. So maybe just for the listeners to understand, I work specifically with some artists. I work now with two art fairs, so the Volta Art Fair and the Affordable Art Fair. And I think specifically with someone like the Affordable Art Fair, we're really starting to see the payoff of this toolkit in practice. We sat down and we suggested and this is really what I mean by the toolkit. It's almost a process that we go through. But we sat down and we said, okay, you know, who are we really? And I think the arts ecosystem is very wide and very nuanced. And there is a place for the Freeze Art Fair. There is a place for the Armory Show. There is certainly a place for the Art Basels. There's also a place for future fairs coming in and kind of changing the market. You have the Affordable Art Fair. AAF has a very different brand than a lot of the kind of blue chip or the mid-career art fairs that are catering to storied galleries that have a very deep collectorship. So we sat down with AAF and we said, you know, what is really our mission? Who's our audience? And so we start asking ourselves these questions. And once you've answered those questions, so for someone like the Affordable Art Fair, we want to appeal to collectors who've been to many fairs, and we want to appeal to that one person who wants to be a collector but doesn't feel confident to step foot in any of the other fairs. So now we're starting with who we're talking to. So that's the first and foremost for me from like a communication standpoint. Who is our audience? Who's our community? Who are we trying to talk to? And then it's really whittling down the avenues to speak to those individuals. And I think one of the things that often comes up with some of my clients is like, they in one breath want to tell you the whole story. You know, the art fair was founded in 2005. It has 11 iterations across the globe. It has, but you end up in the weeds and you lose people. So I think I often, at the crux of kind of this toolkit is let's speak in the present tense. What is the person who's sitting in front of me? What do they want to know right now? What program or exhibition or edition of an art fair do we have forthcoming that we'd like to promote best? And keep everything, you know, it's like, keep it simple, stupid. You've got to just kind of stick with what is going to resonate in the present. And this is kind of like a little maybe communications insider rule of thumb. But a lot of the times my clients get very nervous when it comes, you know, we've done all the work. We've put together the press releases. We've pushed out the social media campaigns. But now they're sitting in front of a journalist and they're very nervous that they're maybe going to be getting a question that's like out of the wheelhouse or out of their script. 
And I always just say, really answer the question that you feel most comfortable answering. I think just because you're in a communications environment or you're speaking to the press, you don't necessarily have to have the answer to every question. And I think the best fallback plan is always going back to what you know and what you're proud of in the present moment and kind of answer the question that you want to answer. You certainly want to have a two-person dialogue here, but at the same time, if someone's asking questions that you're not familiar with, you can respond with what you know and what you're confident about with your brand. And I do think, you know, the art world is quite a sharky place, but if you just keep hammering home what your value system is, it does, it does start to prevail. And for me, when I hit that level of authenticity, that is the place where I want to be sharing from because we do operate in the fine art world, but a lot of these creative industries are super sharky. And I think it's that's such a good reminder. We're always branding ourselves. And when we can stay true to what makes us us, what makes our company our company, what sets us apart. I've done so many online courses in my life, but one of them was when you are trying to figure out who your audience is, I think they called it an avatar. You create a person. So the Art Career Podcast, who is my ideal listener? And what I read or learned at some point was you really can whittle it down to specifics. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're only pitching to that person, but kind of you are. So you're creating your ideal listener, your ideal reader, your ideal viewer. And then any piece of content you're creating, whether it's a press release, whether it's an Instagram reel, Whatever that is, you're kind of targeting that person. And I think that's really good advice. And I think that's something that, you know, we all can keep in mind. I very much agree. And what I was going to say, you know, one of the things that I think I admire most about what you're doing here specifically is I think the art world is so siloed that this avatar, you know, if we're speaking about who a target audience is, there is a very informed, tapped in niche art market audience. This is an insular world. I think we're supposed to be seen as this very like creative and kind of iconoclastic and welcoming environment, but it's a really, it's a pretty defined network. But with something like the art career, and I think even a lot of the times with your advisory work, you know, you're kind of busting the art world open. You know, I think you speaking with like Marilyn Minter, for instance, I think You've brought it down to a superhuman level. And so I think going back to this idea of authenticity, I don't know. I think when I started in the art world, I was always getting a little bit of cold feet. I'm a very confident communicator. But when you meet an artist, you're almost like, am I supposed to talk about this, like, the crazy conceptual, you know, meaning behind the color pink that they're using when really these people just kind of want to tell you their story and why the art looks the way it does is a result of people's lived experience. I mean, most of the time they want to crack a beer with you and have a wonderful conversation about their summer and their travels. So I think there's also something to be said about maybe having an audience, but also being willing to kind of break the mold and welcome new audience members as well. And I think because I'm working with a lot of emerging art world organizations and artists, there is a little bit more humanity to it because we're not constantly minding our P's and Q's because the upper echelon 0.01% of the art world is in the room. This is actually, we're like talking to the people a little bit more than I think you know, maybe a Gagosian or another. And I think that upper echelon, I think that that is over. You know, I think that that's kind of coming to an end and we're kind of at the forefront of that. I mean, there are plenty of people that have come before us that have been breaking down those walls, but we want as many people as possible to have access to the arts, right? That's the bottom line. And I think there's a viability. You know, you don't have to be a blue chip gallery to be successful. There is a full career path For anyone who just kind of puts their whole heart in it and is willing to put the work and 
and learn on the fly. But that's, I think, probably the most refreshing thing about my career path so far. You know, you really can kind of follow your heart on this. And I think like-minded people attract. And so I think that's why you and I are sitting here today. I think that's why we're able to be building community in some ways. I remember you coming to me when you were making the decision to move back to Miami and you were killing it in New York, but you're a Miami girl, right? And you have a huge opportunity in front of you to move back to your roots and kind of bring this expertise to a place that I'm not... I'm not putting down Miami by any means. Miami has obviously a thriving art scene, but it's not New York. And what you did is you brought the New York to Miami. And I think this is just kind of a lesson for all of us, you know, because we do operate in this small little New York bubble. And so many things in the past three years have become so decentralized. And we're seeing... So much shift. And I think this is a perfect example of find what works for you. And that is how you're going to reach the largest amount of people within that space of authenticity. Can you speak a little bit about that move that you made? Absolutely. I'm happy to. I mean, I not to get too much in the weeds biographically, but I'm an only child. My mother comes from, we're we're a Cuban-American family. My dad is American and my mother comes from Cuban heritage. And there was this deep and prescient fear when I was in high school that if I didn't leave Miami, I would never leave Miami. And so I had this deep sense of urgency to get out. And New York had always been one of the places that I... I saw as this outlet. And it's not to say there was, you know, remember, our Basel had been founded in 2001, I want to say. It had been postponed one year, unfortunately, by the September 11th attacks. So we're talking years and years ago, the foundation of the art market was founded. We were going to Art Basel in high school. I was taking art courses. So art was very much a part of my vernacular, my day-to-day. But it was never a... I never really thought of myself as becoming an arts professional. I that was I was going to go into advertising or I was going to go into communications, broadcast journalism. There were these like three different ideas that I kept ping-ponging around. So flash forward, I was in New York for almost 10 years. And I have to say to this day, I still feel like I have a, an exceptionally strong network in New York. You can't throw a stone halfway down a block without hitting an art gallery or bumping into someone as big as New York City is. And so So I just felt very tapped in and I still to this day do, but I, it was funny because it was the beginning of the pandemic and I really, I I kind of moved down here without actually accepting that what I was doing was moving down here. But suddenly I found myself like buying a car and signing a lease on an apartment. And then I was like, oh, I guess I'm, I'm a New York transplant in Miami again. But it kind of happened without this like deep sense of a conscious campaign. And then it just became apparent that if I was going to have the same success in Miami, I was going to have to do the same hustle that I did in New York, which was, you know, I didn't know anyone in New York when I moved there. My family has always been down here. Um, It's a wonder I got away as long as I did. But I came home and there's all this new talent. There are all these insanely amazing, like small curatorial initiatives. There's this like burgeoning foodie scene that was happening. And all of this was for better or for worse, kind of in the middle of 2020. So, you know, we closed for a bit and then everybody started getting itchy. And so you're starting to see like progressive, socially distanced dinners with like a wine pairing and like an art conversation happening in people's backyards because we had the benefit of weather. And so I kind of went through this strange identity crisis where I had to call all my clients and say, nothing is changing meaningfully. I'm going to continue working on our campaigns wherever they may be, but my home base is now going to be Miami and you're probably going to be seeing me doubling down on pop-up exhibitions. You know, last year we exhibited at Untitled Miami, which is truly one of my favorite art fairs during Miami Art Week. But there were all these things that I was like, 
this is my time to now invest in the market that I see to be the home market. And, you know, you mentioned in my bio, I'm, I mean, we, I'm very proud. I'm a very Americanized Cuban-American. I, you know, my last name is Hayworth. I was like the minority in my high school with an American last name. So I don't purport to be an expert on all things Latin America or Hispanic culture, but I have this deep curiosity. So the same way I got into New York and had this deep curiosity to just like figure it out and really get, you know, you said scrappy. Scrappy's my favorite adjective. I mean, it was like, how can I get in front of the people I need to get in front of? And now I'm doing it here. And it's just, it's funny because a lot of these individuals are remembering my name because I was, you know, a, a young girl in one of the small private high schools here that you just, you know people. It's a much smaller community than you can let on here in Miami. And it's growing significantly. But yeah, I've had to get pretty scrappy. You know, I'm rebuilding certain constituencies. You know, it's I can't send out an RSVP reminder to all my New York RSVPers when the event is taking place in Miami. So I don't know. I think sometimes I set arbitrary challenges for myself. But I just knew that this was where I wanted to lead my life moving forward, both personally and professionally. And I saw a huge opportunity with the amount of culture that was blooming here. It's been a really meaningful change. I feel more than ever that I, I am just as committed to the art world and to the culture sphere as I ever have been, but I'm also profoundly happy. And I'm finding myself going on, you know, my long kayak rides and we're out in nature again. So I think there's something kind of beautiful about this well-rounded compliment that came from the move that was, I did not have that balance in New York, even though I keep finding myself back in New York. That's what I was going to say. It's, it's almost as if you have the best of both worlds because you were so rooted in New York when you moved to Miami. And again, back to this world that's become so decentralized, you are still working with clients in New York and you're very much part of the New York landscape. We've worked together in the past, you know, so it's, I just think it's interesting for our listeners to remind themselves that again, back to this concept of pivoting and the importance of doing that. And understanding that whatever trajectory that we're choosing for ourselves can shift and turn. And as a result, we speak deeper to our authentic selves and are more successful ultimately, you know, and I've seen that with you. So, you know, we're talking about New York and Miami, and many would say right now that Miami is looking more and more like New York every day. So I think at this point, there feels like there's been it's been a natural transition as things have kind of shaken out. But for me, I think some of the most exciting parts of the, the art world are actually these decentralized smaller markets. And I think, you know, for anyone who's kind of worried that if they're not in the New York art world, the New York art world has a very stratified, but also very specific kind of tunnel that you, it's like a pipeline. So you can start as a gallery assistant. And if you stick with it, you eventually will make your way you know, at least in, in a perfect world, you make your way to a director role or a leadership position. The New York art world is very kind of tried and true in a lot of ways. But, you know, you go to like Santa Fe or you go to Austin or even I often talk about Asheville, North Carolina, which is like one of the la I mean, no one in New York is talking necessarily about Asheville, North Carolina, at least not in my frame of reference, but you find this really exciting arts community. It's vibrant, it's local, it's committed. So I think part of me got a kind of kick to reality when I moved here. And I, you know, for the New Yorkers listening to this, I don't mean this in any, you know, negative way, but I think the New Yorkers are really the, the people who are saying the New York art world is the only art world in this, in this country. You know, I think, once you get out of it, you realize that there's a lot to be learned and, frankly, a lot of opportunity to be had in different parts of the of the national and certainly the international market. So, again, I think, you know, I started by talking about the Affordable Art Fair. They have so many different satellites across the world. I only get the beauty of working with the New York one. But at the same time, I think there is something to be said that when you stop putting 
borders around your understanding of a geographic place in the art world. You actually, you learn a lot and you can thrive in many ways. So that's just what my experience has been. It's not everybody's, but I'm excited that I have to kind of cut my teeth in different ways. I am too. And it's beneficial for your company. It's beneficial for other businesses, individuals, artists you work with. I think it's great. And I think that's a really important point to drive home. As someone extremely passionate about mental health, seeing a therapist is essential to my quality of life. We'd like to take this moment to announce how thrilled we are to partner with the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp. If you think you might be feeling anxious, depressed, or even just overwhelmed, being alone with your thoughts can be an isolating feeling. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. It's that easy. Join the 2 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. And just for the Art Career Podcast listeners, we will offer 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash T-A-C. That's better, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P, dot com slash T-A-C. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring the Art Career Podcast. I mentioned in your bio, Ellie as storyteller. And I think that whether it's you representing an artist and sharing that artist's work with the world, you writing a press release for someone, you covering an art fair, you have a natural, very organic talent to be able to storytell. Can you speak to that and how that fits into your professional life a bit? Yeah, thanks, Em. I love using the terminology storyteller for more reasons than one. The first being that I actually got into art as a professional career because I loved the ability of art to tell a story. And specifically, when I was a student, it was history. So I learned a lot about global history by way of portraiture. You know, we were learning about Napoleon Bonapartist portraiture. So you're learning about the individual who's actually depicted in the portrait, but you're also learning about these series of historical events. You're learning about a cultural zeitgeist. And Vanderbilt was not a contemporary art history degree. So I think we took one or two avant-garde, modern, and then contemporary art classes. I mean, it was really focused on the classics, on Greek and Roman art and architecture. And again, this kind of, you know, what they call like academic painting. So we were really studying kind of the academy. And that's how I got into art. And if anybody listening to this podcast, I don't think I have to tell them that I love to talk. I'm an ardent communicator. And I feel very deeply passionately about things that intrigue me or pique my interest. And so I think, you know, again, we keep coming back to this idea of PR. I really don't fancy myself a publicist. I feel like the quintessential publicist is at every art gala. She's, you know, at the press preview with everybody trying to rub the elbows and make sure that she's constantly connecting dots for everyone. I feel almost like I embody more of like an ambassadorship than I actually do being a publicist outright. And I mean, for better or worse, I think there are probably, and I'm going to say this very transparently, there are probably more people who are more talented at garnering the New York Times press article or the review, the critics pick in art forum. And for anyone listening, it's not to say I can't land that for you because I absolutely can. But that to me is kind of the product of the labor. Doing the walkthrough myself, writing the press release, digesting the work, getting to talk about it on, you know, I'm not a huge fan of social media, but we all need to be there. So getting to digest it on social media. And then frankly, just talking about it in my day-to-day. I have a very wide and very intricate network of 
professionals in the art world that I'm talking to on a given day. I, you know, I talk to a curator in the morning. I'm talking to an art handler in the afternoon, talking to a collector in the evening. You know, I'm talking to the media everywhere in between. I'm talking to a new up-and-coming designer who's interested in a piece of furniture that was referencing Alina Bobardi building in Sao Paulo, like all of these things provide conduit points for me. And so when I say storyteller, I even think this podcast is an example of it. I just, I really enjoy taking the campaigns that I work on and the work of my affiliate network and bringing it down to a level where I get to speak and share my enthusiasm and I think that's why, at the end of the day, I'm always working with emerging. I'm always working with a new gallery or a pop-up exhibition or, you know, a young and up-and-coming designer. There's this desire to feel like I've scratched the itch of my curiosity and I want to bring other people in. And again, I think at the end of the day, we can call Hayworth kind of a communications and a PR firm. But I feel more strongly that it is kind of this storytelling entity. I help people get their stories on their websites. I'm doing a lot of like behind the scenes. I write a lot of news newsletters and I'm penning a lot of op-eds for homegrown pieces of literature on organizations' websites. So I'm a ghostwriter for a lot of things. That is, I think, where my heart is at. I like to talk about things and I like to write about things and... I deeply desire for the press to share my enthusiasm about a lot of these pitches that I'm sending out. And I think that's where the storyteller idea comes from. And it's funny because I, I, as I get older, I'm realizing like I was never going to be one of those, like I was never going to be a cool kid. I was never very quiet or aloof or mis there's no mystique. I was always deeply enthusiastic and almost like too earnest. And frankly, I think for those that see the value in that, those are the reason that they're still working with me because there's like an infectious enthusiasm. I have relentless energy. You have relentless energy, and this is going to be a compliment, but it's just a fact. You're one of the smartest women I know, and it's infectious. And first of all, I'm over the cool kids. I think that that's over too. I think this is about being true to ourselves, coming back to that point of authenticity. Your drive, your hunger, your spirit is infectious. And coming from someone who has worked with you, it completely translates to everything, right? I mean, you are so good at what you do. And I would pass on any of my peers that were starting companies over to you any day. I have complete trust in you. And just to reiterate, a new client comes to Hayworth. Are they telling you what they want? Are you going through a list? We're kind of returning to the beginning, but... What are you bringing for those people who would like to speak with you now or in the future about growing their brands, whatever that is? What will you give to them? How will that relationship start? At the end of the day, I think it comes down to marketing. So I usually start and I won't necessarily take on a client who doesn't have a milestone that they're working towards. So maybe they're curating their first exhibition, you know, if it's an artist being included in a solo show, it's one of their first solo shows, or it's a particularly tricky one. We sit down and essentially talk about what communications materials can be crafted and what channels they can be executed on in order to get the news out. So you've mentioned writing the press release in some ways is at the very beginning of that process. We usually sit down and do some kind of key messaging audit. So I need to sit down and really understand what the intention of this brand is. And a lot of the times I think people come at me with a bit too much information or I hate to use the terminology virtue signaling because it's not virtue signaling has this kind of negative connotation to it. But I think a lot of people are very comfortable talking about what their vision is or how they see if they were to be successful, how they see the world changing. But there's like a whole in between about what are you actually doing now? How can people actually get involved with you? So I help 
bring these aspirations down, put it on paper and either put it on a website, put it on a newsletter, put it in a press article. So I, I basically bring it down. And to that point, I just want to kind of remind myself, our listeners, what you need in the beginning or as you move along. This is from my experience, right? I worked with Ellie, the first big show I curated, Harvest. I don't know how many years ago it was. It was pre-pandemic. It was nine. It was on my birthday, Emily. It was a, it's a great memory. <laughs> it was a great night. Right. And Ellie was able to secure some really solid press for me, for the artists, for the show. We had an incredible opening. Ellie was able to negotiate the venue. Yeah, the whole thing was, and and my reminder right now, and what I really want to talk about, because I get caught up in this too. We start something and we're like, okay, I want to work with someone and I want that New York Times article. Right. Or I want to be an art for, guess what? This is from experience. What you want is the authenticity and the storytelling and the true legit press that's helping you do that. The New York Times of the world, the Vogue's, they're going to find you, right? Like if it's uh, yeah. your time. It's a time earned like you, activity. You, you don't need, you can't hire someone to make you good at what you're doing. You can hire someone to help lift you up, right? And position you in the right ways in which those things can then happen, right? And there are much bigger PR firms that you can hire for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And do you want to know what? everyone. I think half of the time that's bullshit anyway, right? I think that we need more Ellie's in this world to kind of come in and organically build to get you to the point where you're actually really proud of landing Vogue Italia, like I did a few weeks ago, well, you right? Be very like, proud of that. Yeah, I am. I, think- I am because that was fucking cool, and I yeah. I wasn't working with a PR representative at that point, right? And so I think I'm speaking from experience. And hey, I want to be in the New York Times. I want this podcast to be in the New York Times, and I think it will eventually. But I also know that I have to do the work to get myself there. And and by the way, I mean, even once you land the article, M, I mean, it doesn't solve. It solves nothing. wonderful visibility. It'll help you build maybe a new community. But at the end of the day, it's about cultivating the relationships that you already exist for the organization or the company. I think we're in this environment, and I have to remind myself of this too, we're in this environment where you see quick success on social media because that's what is shown to you on social media. And I hate to say this, it's again, it's like a with all due respect statement, but a lot of the art world, it's like Hollywood, where you actually like get down to it and you're like, how is this 21 year old on the cover of every magazine? And there's usually some family member involved that is either deeply entrenched in the art world, has made it or has injected a lot of money behind these careers. And I'm not trying to undercut anyone's success because everyone has their path. But I bootstrapped my company. It's still bootstrapped. You know, Em, and I think we talk about this all the time. Like, it takes blood, sweat, and tears. Sometimes it takes putting the ego aside I think having a New York Times article today would be amazing, but tomorrow you still have to say what comes next because that's not the end of the evolution. So yeah, I try to help build the brands. I almost try to turn a mirror on companies that I work with or individuals that I work with so that they're seeing all of the little pieces of the puzzle that need to continue to be refined and grown in order to keep on the right track. That's why I think it's I'm hard pressed to say that I'm really a publicist. I think it's I'm really kind of a communications strategist, a brand. But Ellie, strategist. I will say you are a publicist, and you're the publicist that we need in this day and age, right? <laughs> know, so like it's it. like I understand you're kind of moving away from that, but that's authentic publicity. Yeah. That's someone that's helping lift you up, right? So I respect what you're saying, and I'm not dictating, you know 
who you are professionally, but I mean, for me, you're, you're better than most publicists, you know, because it's coming from an authentic place. Okay. So let's start wrapping up a little bit by asking you, I know that you're an avid art collector. I am. (laughs) Compulsive. You are just... (laughs) A few artists in your collection. Who are they? I have quite a few. And I'm really proud of my collection because I think similar to how I've built my company, it's all been very homegrown. And it tends to be a lot of pieces, especially early on. I started collecting in grad school. I was an intern who had a paid intern salary or, you know, stipend. So I really didn't have capital to start collecting, but I think I'm in this world because I love the art and I want to support the artists. And so I support living artists. I don't go to auction. I really have zero interest in helping a private collector flip one of their pieces or offload a, you know, that's not my interest. And it's all been very organic. So I'm very proud of a number of the pieces that I've collected. I think if you guys haven't checked out, I I did get a really lovely interview with Sarah Casconi in Artnet a few years ago that you guys are more than welcome to take a peek at. The two pieces I'm very passionate about lately, I keep staring past the camera at one of the pieces in front of me. This is a testament, I think, also to the power of digital marketing. So in the middle of the pandemic, I moved to Miami And galleries weren't open. New York was still largely closed off, but I now had all this wall space, which was the most exciting moment ever. And I I basically garnered a relationship with this gallery that I discovered on Instagram that has now gone on, I think, to really be one of of my favorites. The gallery is called Carvalho Park. They're in East Williamsburg. And I have two pretty spectacular pieces that I acquired in quick succession because I just couldn't quite get enough of their gallery program. And they're both really personal pieces. Um, One is by an artist named Yulia Eelzeson. She is Russian, but based in London. And the piece is called The Sweet Tooth. And it is very whimsical and light to a certain degree, although I think there's a commentary to it that is a bit more cautionary. It's kind of cautioning us against getting too confectionary or falling victim to following the sweets too quickly. And I mean that as a metaphor, not as a literal, but it has, it's really quite whimsical. And she has gone on to become a really confident and bright young painter. She's in her twenties. She's really quite talented. And then another artist is Brian Ratner and he's also a Carvalho Park artist. And he recently was at a residency in Aspen, which is a place that I have spent quite a bit of time in, mainly in the summertime. And so a lot of his pieces make reference to nature. And the one piece that I have specifically is about the Aegean Sea. And it just feels very poetic and melodic to me whenever I look at it. And it's right in front of me here in my office. But other than that, I mean, you can even see some of the pieces behind me. You know, this is a Jen DeNike photograph that she made during the pandemic. The blue glove that you see is also making reference to the pandemic and to kind of the public health crisis. Um, You have these little pieces of drywall from homes that were demolished during gentrification processes in Brazil by an artist named Iris Elena. And then she printed generic facades of architectural buildings on top of them. So there's art everywhere. I just had a series of tarot cards from a really amazing artist, Langdon Graves, who's represented by Dinner Gallery. Just got those back from the framer yesterday. So I don't know. I think I just, I can't really stop. I collect everything really early stage and it's usually very much like wet paint art. It's like right out of the artist's studio or it's in their first ever show. And some of the things have really gone on. I don't, I don't purport to ever advise people on market value or investment potential, because I think maybe it's above my pay grade. Maybe it's just I don't quite believe in it. I really don't believe in flipping contemporary artists' works. But my entire home is surrounded in art objects and pieces. I could go on forever, but I am deeply, deeply passionate about it. And if I have to be fully transparent, I think I do the work I do, and I earn the living I earn because I want to constantly put the money back into the artists. And so I can't stop. It's compulsive. (laughs) Well, don't ever stop. I share your love of collecting. 
I think one of the top three reasons that I want to continue to thrive economically is to buy art. I want it's because to buy you want art. that Lisa Yuskovich, M. Ellie. We're putting it out into the universe. Yes, we are. Don't I know and you? <laughs> yes, you Lisa, know me too well. Listening. Yeah, Yuskovich, when I uh, have one of her pieces on my wall, which I will, uh, that will most certainly be equivalent to 10 New York Times articles. Uh, yeah, you know me so well, Ellie. I feel as though I know you so well. I am very blessed to call you a colleague and a good friend. Uh, I love you. I think that this is going to be wonderful for everyone to hear, especially young professionals. There's so much insight and wisdom that you've gained, especially over the past decade. And I'm grateful to have you be part of the Art Career Podcast. And thank you so much for being here with us. Emily, I am profoundly grateful to you. This has been not only the most pleasant afternoon that I've spent in quite some time, but I just, I very much appreciate the value that it will add to just being able to kind of speak to my community a little more authentically and a little more directly. So thank you for doing this. Em. Wait, before we wrap up, is there <laughs> anything you want to promote right now coming up? Anything you want to talk about at all that's going on with you? I mean, I think by the time that this podcast goes live, we'll have launched and wrapped some of the exciting pop-up exhibitions, but we do, I think just stay tuned because Hayworth has been endeavoring to curate and mount a number of different pop-up exhibitions, namely in Miami, but they're, we're looking at some of in the West Coast for next year and also New York as always. Um, I can't get too far away. So yeah, I think, you know, we focus on the intersection of art and design. So there will be a lot of design pop-ups and certainly some art exhibitions that Hayworth has a hand in over the next few months. And certainly you and I should curate something together in the next year or two. So stay tuned for that as well. I love working with you in every way, Ellie. Thank you. Thanks. I love you. Feeling is mutual. I love you too. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Art Career. If you get value from this podcast, please consider helping me make more of these episodes by becoming an Art Career Premium member at theartcareer.supercast.com. That's theartcareer.supercast.com. S-U-P-E-R-C-A-S-T dot com. And please don't forget to rate and review. Every rating counts. Thanks so much.